Resurrection Sunday. You know the church meets on Sunday because we celebrate Resurrection Sunday every week. That's why the church meets on the first day of the week on Sundays, just in case you didn't know. It's not like it. I mean, Auckland doesn't. They meet on Wednesdays. But, um, but traditionally, that's why churches meet on Sundays, because there's something about celebrate. Like we, we, the church has always been about celebrating the resurrection. And I think we probably don't think enough about it uh, and all that it means. And so I hope we can find some new things in it today. I think we should start by reading it. Uh, reading it together. If you've got a Bible, going to be John chapter 20. If you don't, we've got Sky Edition Bible up there for you to follow along with. Uh, John 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved. Also the one that happens to be writing this. (laughs) I love it. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb Both of them, get this, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, if you're the fastest running disciple and you've been following for Jesus for three and a half years and you're writing the story of Jesus, it must be really important to you that you're the fastest (laughs) to insert it into the story. And stooping, this other disciple, John, stooping in, Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. He might have been the fastest, but he was a little bit timid on this occasion. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And you imagine if he's stooping in that tiny doorway, he sort of probably barged him out of the way to get in and have a proper look. He saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just, just so you know, I'm faster, also went in and he saw and he believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Then they went back to their homes. Oh, you know, as a pastor, I feel like Easter's a lot of pressure because it's like this big weekend on the church calendar and you have to talk about something you talk about every single week, but you've got to talk about it in a way that feels like nobody's ever heard it before. <laughs> and so every, like, you know, about six months or almost as soon as Easter's finished, I'm starting to think of next Easter. What's my angle going to be? You know, like, I've got to pull another rabbit out of the hat, you know? And I, I've been thinking about it and I was thinking a few months ago on my sabbatical and I was thinking, I was like, I was thinking about the stone being rolled away. So here's my angle for today, okay? I was thinking about the stone being rolled away and it, it got me thinking that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. Because if you read on in the story, like Jesus could travel through walls, So he could certainly travel through a stone. And if you read all the different accounts and all the gospels, you find that nowhere does it say, and the stone was rolled away and Jesus came out. 
It says, and the stone was rolled away, and then we went in and found that Jesus wasn't there. And I want to propose today that the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out, but it's so that we could enter in. It's like everything Jesus did. It wasn't just so that that it happened. It was so we could enter into his way in some way. Even crucifixion is like an invitation to enter in to that same way of life. His birth by the Spirit is a way to enter in to a certain way of life. And so the, the stone being rolled away had nothing with Jesus getting out, but have every, it has everything to do with us getting into the story. It's not about his exit, it's about our entry into something. And I think as we would enter into it today, if we would enter in, if, if, if the stone was rolled away, not so we could get out, but so we could go in, let's go in and let's have a look. And let's wonder if if this whole thing was not so he could get out, but so I could go in. What does he want me to find in here? As I look around, this is actually, this is a photo Katie took of what they believe is the actual tomb. And you can see that the doorway is quite small. Hence why it tells us in the story that they stooped to enter in. And I think the stooping is not just a descriptive term but it's an instructive term of how we should enter in. That, that doorway's too small to enter in proud. The doorway's too small to enter in with your shoulders back and your head held up high as if you already know what it's all about. The doorway's too big to enter in proud. It requires a stooping. Stooping requires bending. Bending is a posture of humility. Stooping has the idea to look again more closely. You don't stoop and pick up a flower unless you want to to look at something you can't see from back here. To stoop to be with a child is to come down and to humble yourself to their level. And I think the church could do a bit of a better job at stooping. Don't you? That we should be stooping people. Not like in the stooping to somebody else's level, but in the humble posture of looking a little bit more closely, not assuming we already know. And that's Peter, and that's John, and it tells us Mary even. They all stooped in. And so I think as Jesus invites us in through the rolled away stone, into the the empty tomb today, we must stoop there if we'd ever find something there. Nobody can enter the kingdom of God proud. Nobody can enter life to the full, sure of themselves. We must all stoop. So let's stoop. I wish Curate was a stooping church. You'll be rewriting our vision statement. One of the things is that we'd be a humble church, a stooping church. I think the mark of followers of Jesus should be that they are humble. It's not just the way in, it's the way on. So we stoop and we wonder, what does this empty tomb mean? And I mean, it means a lot of things, and we don't have time to talk about them all, but I want to talk about three big ones that I think the empty tomb means today. The first is this, 
It's that God is recreating the world. If we would stoop in and go, what's the significance of there being an empty tomb? What's the significance of there being a resurrection? I think we would discover first that it means God is recreating the world. In Revelations 21 verse 5, it says, Behold, this is the words of Jesus, I am making all things new. It tells us that Jesus in the scriptures, particularly in John chapter 1, that Jesus was the one through whom all things were created. It actually tells us in, in Corinthians, oh, in, in Acts, sorry, that it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. That all things were created by him and for him, Colossians say. So the creator of the world gave his life for us on Good Friday, died, and is resurrected. And if the creator is resurrected, maybe it means he's recreating all over again. It's important to note this because I think somewhere along the line we pick up this like weird disembodied spirituality that waits for an exit from this world, but God's not waiting for us to exit from this world. He's wanting to enter into it to recreate it from the inside out. We think sometimes as Christians, I don't know where we picked it up from, but it's like, I can't wait to get out of this place. Get to the clouds where we just sort of float around. Woo! But that's not the picture the Scriptures give us. It tells us about a new heavens and a new earth. The whole story of the Scriptures is about God made this perfect garden and put Adam and Eve in it to tend it and then asked them to spread their, their kingdom dominance over all the earth and turn it all into a garden. But they fell and God's been trying to resurrect the story ever since. He's not looking at trying to take you out of this place, but to make you a new person in this place. He's recreating the world. Matter matters to God. He's not abandoning the earth. He's recreating the earth. And if matter matters to God, then matter should matter to us. See, Jesus wasn't resurrected as some weird disembodied spiritual ghost. People touched him and clung to him and felt his wounds in his hands and in his side. They ate with him and the food didn't just fall through. <laughs> Yet at the same time, he could transcend space and time and move in a way, but it was a real body. It just wasn't subject to the laws of nature in the same way ours are. And so we need to Mark this point that Christians do not believe in a vague disembodied spirituality. We believe that Jesus was materially raised from the dead. He wasn't revived as a resuscitated corpse, but more radically raised to a new life in a transformed body, a spiritual body, no longer subject to the limitations of space and time. And if you want to read further about that, you can do that in 1 Corinthians 15 about how we too will receive these bodies like Jesus had. I think the resurrection implies that the issues of health and the issues of the environment and the issues of political structures and of community welfare matter because God is not abandoning the world. He's recreating the world. And if we could stoop into that empty tomb, we would get a glimpse that that's what he's about. 
The second thing I think we would find if we would stoop in, and I couldn't find the right language for this, but we'll roll with this and explain the, the incompleteness of the language, is that love wins. That love wins. But for that, we need to talk about love and winning. Because like, love doesn't win in the type of love that we're used to using and referring to love as. Like we, we use love for liking things and we use love for romance and we use, that's not the type of love that wins. It's nice, but it's not the type of love that wins. The type of love we're talking about that wins is the type of love that is self-sacrificing for the good of another. The Greeks in Jesus' time called it agape, a selfless type of love. This is the type of love that wins. But even wins is not really a good word. Because winning implies that there's another game and perhaps you could lose later. Winnings almost isn't, like, wins is not, like, complete enough. It's not total enough. But these other words feel like they lose meaning sometimes in church, like victory and triumph, because they're used as rhetoric, and sometimes we don't really understand their totalitarian sort of nature, that they are all-encompassing winnings. And as we look into that empty tomb, we see that that's exactly what happens. He lived this life, Jesus lived this life of love, and it looked like hate would overpower it, and jealousy would overpower it, and religious structures would overpower it, and governments would break it, and people were just wondering when, and finally he would give up on love and just show his mighty hand. But he withheld his mighty hand and continued on the pathway of love, and in resurrection we see it was a better way after all. It was an all-encompassing victory. I read this, and I love it. It says this, The resurrection spells God's triumph over death, and all the forces of sin, evil, and violence within us and around us. In nature, death has the last word on our lives, and the lives of those we love. The great and final no on us and all created things. But the resurrection transforms the natural order. It shows that death is not the last word after all. God has the last word. And God's word is a triumphant yes to us and to creation in the face of sin, suffering, and death. Just as God has the first word on our lives by bringing us into being, so God's word will be the last on our lives. Not death, but God. Not no, but yes. This triumph means that we live in hope. Hope in God and the yes of God, which is spoken to us in Jesus Christ and the rising from the dead. Love wins. He's recreating the world. He's, he's showing us that there is a way that wins and he is giving us hope now. When we stoop into that empty tomb, we discover it's not just something for then, but there's powerful thens that impact the nows. That's what hope is. When we look forward to thens and they transform our nows, Hope now. It makes all the difference to our present. 
Romans 8, 11. We, I mean, we sang it beautifully in that song where it says, resurrection power runs through my veins too. If the spirit of whom who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, not your dead bodies, your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus said this crazy trippy statement in John 11 verse 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? No, Jesus, you just said two contradictory things. But there's something about empty tombs that create resurrections now. There's something about the hope of resurrection that resurrects us now. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters, enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Other translations say we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. If we stoop into that empty tomb, we discover that hope now. Have you thought about all the things you try to do to anchor your life? Aren't we like obsessed with anchoring our life? Anchoring our life and our plans? Just, you know, like we want to control as much as we can so life can go the way we want it to go, right? It's, it's human nature, it seems. And so we plan and we save and we buy and we invest and we study and we map out our careers and we imagine and we have our timelines of when we might meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright and all of these things, right? When we might start a family, we think of how many people might be in that family and we have our anchors. And then life happens, and we don't meet someone. And someone passes away. And COVID happens. And life happens. And our anchors are shown for what they really are. Poor attempts at holding on to life ourselves amongst the storms of this world. And they so easily, they're like tiny anchors on big boats. They so easily just pull out of the sand and pull out of the rock, and bend, and turn into nothing. But the Scriptures tell us that when we look in the empty tomb, we find a hope that is an anchor for our soul. That amongst death and decay, amongst plans going well, and plans falling apart, amongst deals being made and deals being broken, amongst all of that, there's something about that empty tomb that can hold on to you and keep you in place. It can keep you on track. And I think that hope of resurrection, sometimes like we hold on to it for dear life. But sometimes it holds on to us and gets us through. And this is what we find as we stoop in. What we need to understand, and I don't think many people do, is that the resurrection isn't the miracle you think it is. 
we act like it's some great surprise, some great shock turn in the story. But resurrection is the inevitable outcome of living in the kingdom. Resurrection is the inevitable outcome of living in the kingdom. And Jesus lived in the kingdom perfectly. He lived surrendered to God's will, and he lived letting the love of God flow through him to the people around him. He lived completely. So we're all like, they're all like, where's Jesus? And Jesus is like, don't you get it? This is where that life always leads. And so when he invites us to follow him, we get this all wrong in our like, I don't know, the last hundred years of church history where we believe in Jesus and say a prayer like a transaction that receives a promise of resurrection and then it doesn't really matter what happens between now and then because I am saved and we miss Jesus' invitation to salvation all along, which was never about that. It was about coming into salvation now by living in relationship with me. We turn belief into agreeing with a statement rather than living in a trusting belief in him. And we undermine the idea of resurrection by turning it into a transaction that if you've done the right thing, you can receive it at the end of your life rather than if you live in relationship with Jesus, the inevitable outcome is that you would be raised. We need to reclaim that this Resurrection Sunday. We need to stop buying into the fire insurance way of being saved. But embrace that Jesus always said, come follow me. It wasn't about saying a prayer. It was about being near him. It was about being in his presence and in relationship with him. We need to stop wondering about how we can go to heaven and start asking how we can live with God. C.S. Lewis said this, God is not proud. He's a stupor. God's not proud. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And I need you to know that today. That as you, empty the in, as you enter the empty tomb with us here today, no matter what your story, no matter how many things you've shown, you, pre, you prefer your self-reliance, you prefer your career, you prefer your sleeping, prefer, prefer your money, prefer your whatever. God's not proud when you realize that he'll have you. So what should our response be to an empty tomb? We've discovered it's empty. We've discovered some of what it could mean. What should our response be? Let's continue in the story, shall we? In John 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. She said to her, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus said her name. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher, rabbi. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. Once we find the empty tomb and we figured out what some of it might mean, man, we've got to go look for Jesus. Because he's not there, as powerful as it is, and as significant as it is. And as much as God wanted us to enter into it, it was not so that we could stay there, but so that we could come out and go, well, if he's not here, where is he? Because if he's risen, he's somewhere. And I love she's weeping and she doesn't understand it, but she knows she has to find him. And you and I, it's not enough to find an empty tomb. We have to find Jesus for ourselves. And so we need to go seeking him. And as we find him, and I I pray you're finding him today. I pray you're finding him again. I pray you're finding him for the first time. I pray you're finding him because he's here. You know, when you begin looking for Jesus, just like Mary realized she was, he was right before her and she didn't realize, when you start looking for Jesus, it's like that. When you start looking for Jesus, you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize he was so near. When you start looking over the story of your life, looking for Jesus in it, you realize he's been there all along. On the days where I didn't feel like I could keep going, oh, there he was. On the days where I thought it was all going to fall apart, there he was holding me. On the days where I thought he was least present, when nothing made sense in my life, I can look back and see, oh, he was there. I can see his fingerprints. I can see his grace. I can see his chance encounters. I can see the tiniest threads that turned my life when everything hung in the balance, when I begin looking for Jesus. And so once I've found him, what would be an appropriate response? What would be an appropriate response? What would be the response of Mary, right? Teacher, Lord, Savior, And to cling to his feet, to bow down before him, to worship him, to give him the worth of your life, to love him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Surely this is the only appropriate response to finding Jesus. Not forced, not contrived. 
but revealed. And then once you've done that, Jesus would lift you up and say, don't cling to me. But go and tell. Don't keep this for yourself. Don't hog it. Don't hold it. Don't be so selfish to forget that people need it. But go and tell the brothers. Go and tell the sisters. Go and tell anybody. Not because it's some dredgy, dreadful mission and obligation, but because why would you want to keep something like that to yourself? If he's truly risen, it changes everything. It means everything he said was true. And it means everything that he said about what is still to come is true. And so today, I pray you would find him.